Matthew chapter 18. Could I trouble someone for a cup of water? Thank you. I don't think it's a frog in my throat. But there's something. Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> As we've been working our way through this chapter, we considered the last time we were in it, the first part of this chapter, really up through verse 10. If you look at verse 11, depends on what translation you have, but uh, in New American Standard, Pastor John. New American Standard, there are brackets around verse 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And you might uh, see a marginal note about that verse. Early manuscripts do not contain this verse. And uh, that just references the fact that there are different manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew, and that some of the early ones do not contain this verse. But if you read the verse, it seems <clears throat> like we've heard that, seen that somewhere before. And that's true. It's in Luke <clears throat> 19 and verse 10 where it says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so whenever you see that in your Bible, you see a verse that has brackets around it. There's usually an explanation, and it's a reference to the fact that we have a translation of Scripture that's based upon a Greek text, and that Greek text is a collection of all the manuscripts evidence for uh, whatever book of scripture you're reading. So in this case, in the Gospel of Matthew, there are different ones. And this is a kind of difference that sometimes you see in translations when translations are based upon a different set of manuscripts. But in this case, we're talking about a difference that really doesn't affect at all the truth, because Luke's Gospel has this verse it's possible that someone copying the Gospel of Matthew came to this place, and one suggestion was that they just were looking for some kind of transition, uh, some kind of transition between these verses and saw in the other Gospels a verse that seemed to fit. And in verse 12, you have a lost sheep. And so there certainly is, in terms of the theme, something that fits. In terms of verse 11, is that true? Has the Son of Man come to save that which was lost? Yes, he's come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke said that. So these kinds of differences shouldn't trouble us. They just reference the fact that we have God's Word preserved in manuscripts, and now we see it in the translation, and there's a reference here to a truth about our Lord that we're going to consider today that he's come to save. He's come to save the lost. This is something he delights in doing. The context of Matthew chapter 18, it's little ones. Remember, 
the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. And they ask that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, sort of settle it once and for all. And Jesus gave them an illustration of a little child. He takes a child, verse 2, sets him before them and says, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a childlike trustfulness, a humble trustfulness, someone said, that needs to characterize every person who belongs to Christ. And the picture here, while he is using a child as an illustration, the picture is of a sinner, any sinner, who comes to Christ. Notice Jesus' appeal, verse 4, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he's describing the nature of his disciples, humble, trustful, little ones. And all of us, if we know the Lord, fit into that category. And for that reason, that helps us to think about ourselves, but for that reason, we also need to take care how we treat those who belong to the Lord. And that's where Jesus begins to apply. Verse 5, reception of such Notice he says, whoever receives one such child, he's talking about that kind of little one, a humble, trustful disciple of Christ. He is, a, <clears throat> excuse me, receives me. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So reception of them and then guarding of them and certainly not sinning against them is important. Verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea, a horrific image. And then a pronouncement of woe upon those who would cause them to stumble. Not only should they be received and guarded but there is judgment for those who would cause them to stumble. There's a woe pronounced upon the world, verse 7. And certainly in light of that pronouncement and the pronouncement of woe to the one through whom a stumbling block comes, we ought to take care, believers, not to offend, not to cause someone else to stumble. And uh, we probably need to look into that, even that subject further. I got a piece of mail this week that uh, as I opened it up, it was all about stumbling blocks. And it was teaching from faithful pastors through church history who were talking about stumbling blocks. And I was blessed to begin reading that. And I thought that would be a good study to just expand upon what it means to cause someone to stumble. Talked about that a little bit. Causing someone to sin by example or by our words, leading them in a direction where they would sin against the Lord and bring harm to themselves. And then taking care for ourselves. Verses 8 and 9, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, how serious are you about not stumbling yourself? Well, 
Jesus says, it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Is Jesus literally talking about dismembering yourself? Is he literally talking about taking your eye out? No, he's using an image that is meant to convey the seriousness with which you treat sin when you see it in your life so that you wouldn't stumble and so that you wouldn't cause someone else to stumble. Radical decisions for yourself so that you won't sin against the Lord and that you wouldn't cause any little ones. And Jesus then gives this instruction, verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's talking again, not just about the child he has with him, who may have been a believer in him, but he's talking about God's people. Don't despise them. Again, in the context of the gospel of Luke, Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus, this poor man who was eating from the crumbs that fell from Lazarus' table, and then the tax collectors and the sinners who sat and ate with Jesus and Jesus was being criticized for being a friend of sinners. These are the little ones. These are not to be despised. These ones who are rescued as lost sheep are to be received and welcomed. They're not to be sinned against. They're not to be thought little of. Why? Because they're angels in heaven, continually see the face of my Father. God is protecting them. And God can dispatch his angels, but God has his eye and attention upon each one of his little ones, every single one of them. What do you think? Jesus then says, verse 12, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Jesus is using here a parable, common illustration for people who knew shepherding. Shepherding had been a part of Israel's history. It was a part of their modern day as he's speaking to them. Jacob, Moses, David, a shepherding leader through the nation's history was oftentimes chosen. And then certainly they had shepherding involved in their very worship, the customs of sacrifice, the Passover itself, all related to the offering of sheep at the temple. And Jesus gives attention here to a very common thing, and that is a sheep that has gone astray, verse 12. And what he's comparing these little ones to, particularly little ones who fall into sin, is a sheep that's gone astray. And I want to just take some time with this parable and consider what our Lord is teaching here, and I hope that it will encourage our hearts as we see his heart for the little ones, the lost sheep. First thing I want to draw attention to is the tendency 
of sheep to wander. This is not something unusual. If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, is that likely? Yes, it's a common thing. And for a person who has a hundred sheep, you might say, well, he has 99 more, but the care of a shepherd is to value each one of those. A flock that's full of rams, ewes, little lambs, whether they are raised for wool or for sacrifice, for food, it would be a valuable asset. Such a flock would need protection, care, predators, bad weather, diseases, all sorts of things demand the work of a shepherd, and that's a resource to be valued. What would cause, and notice the context, these sheep are on the mountains. At the end of the verse, it says, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains? So they're on the mountains, perhaps gone up there for the pasture up there, lush and green, and the shepherd is there, but one goes astray, just one, wanders away from the flock, perhaps goes down looking for greener grass somewhere else. And the shepherd decides, in light of the one, there's value in that one, wouldn't he go to search after that one? And obviously the answer is yes, he would, but this is a common thing. This is something that happens all the time. Even if the shepherd would make a barrier for the sheep, even if he's watching the sheep, even if he's paying attention, it's possible that one out of all those hundred would take off. They see green grass on the other side. I was reading about a shepherd this week. It was talking about shepherding in the UK. And in terms of sheep, and they're wanting to get someplace where they're not supposed to be, he was talking about a kind of netting that shepherds would use to make sort of a temporary structure. And it was meant, obviously, to keep the sheep in, but sometimes when a shepherd would come out in the morning to look at the sheep, these little lambs would get their head through the netting just to be able to try to get to what was on the other side. Even though there's things on the inside that were valuable, of course, safety on the inside. Just reflecting the fact that, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. Even, even, even if it isn't really, we just want to find out, right? Sheep have a tendency to wander. They have a tendency to not stay where they ought to be. And there's a ready reference, isn't there, to other scriptures, just thinking about this, Isaiah 53 and verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus in the Gospels is referring to people as sheep. Matthew, as he writes, Matthew chapter 9 no doubt taking from the imagery that Jesus himself taught. Matthew says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus says he gave his instructions to his disciples. He said, don't go in the way of the Gentiles. Don't enter into the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Peter referencing this same phenomenon here of going astray, he says, for you, speaking to his readers throughout Asia, that area around Greece and to the east of Greece, he says, for you are continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So in terms of straying, right, here is an image. Jesus is talking about little ones and the possibility that someone would stray. His disciples taking that teaching thought in terms of when people are lost, when they're without Christ, when they're in their sins, they are like lost sheep. They are continually straying. They wander away. This is our tendency. And what do we do with those? Well, we take our cue as to what to do with those from the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? What does he teach us to do? If he is the good shepherd and the great shepherd, he's going to give us the right kind of guidance as to what to do. And even with this simple illustration, he's saying that a good shepherd is going to go after the sheep. Not just going to let it go. Not just going to think in terms of, well, we've got 99. Or who cares about them? It's no big deal. They, they want to be out there anyway. And so it takes the work of a shepherd to go and search for the one who is straying. And that's what the shepherd is doing. It doesn't describe the process other than it is on the mountains. And you can imagine navigating such territory would be difficult. Again, that little book on shepherding that I referenced by a man named John Seymour, he describes looking for strays in Great Britain. He also shepherded, talked about shepherding in South Africa. It's just an interesting perspective on different locations and different circumstances, but the, there's a consistency, and that is that strays are part of life as a shepherd, and how do you go and search for them? In the case of uh, the UK, they would use dogs. In the case of South Africa, they might use horses, but the, the, the goal is the same, to rescue the sheep before something happens to them and they either die or have disease to the point where they're going to die. He talks about in the UK when sometimes there's snow and the sheep goes astray in the snowstorm or before the snowstorm, and then the snowstorm hits and then the sheep actually gets covered with snow. Or it gets into a sheltered place where there's a lot of snow, and maybe the sheep is sheltered in that place, but it can't get out. And so it's going to take the work of a shepherd to go and call for the sheep and perhaps hear the sheep to be, in, to be able to find where the sheep is to rescue the sheep, to get the sheep out. I love what he says at the end of the book. He's talking about the nature of, of shepherding, and he says this. He says, even if you have one missing, you have to go up there and take a look. Well, if you're worth anything. The same as if you had 100 missing. It doesn't matter. It's a sheep. There's a value in just one. And praise the Lord that we do have a good shepherd who is willing to search for us, who's willing to call for us. 
that's such a blessing. I don't know about you, but I am thankful for the Lord's shepherding of me, for rescuing me in the first place. And then in my life, as I have been tempted to go astray or have turned from the right path for him to call me back, for him to reach out in his providence, reach out with his truth, sometimes reach out with his people to call me back so that I would come back to the place where I'm following. And that happens for God's people, I trust, all the time. He's shepherding us today through his word. He shepherds us through the course of our weeks. Sometimes he uses something that we read or, again, someone in our lives to draw us back to himself. I was thankful the last couple of weeks to be reading a little book by Thomas Brooks called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he was talking about how the devil, one of his devices is to magnify the difficulty of the Christian life and service to Christ. And his remedy or remedies, he usually prescribes more than one remedy, is to meditate on the duty of following Christ, not the, the difficulty. To meditate on the help the Lord gives us through that difficulty, to meditate upon the difficulty that the Lord went through for us so that we will follow him. And I'm hearing or reading this, and I'm thinking this is one of the ways the Lord is just going to shepherd me as I'm reading about what the Lord himself did in a time of difficulty. And just listen, this is praise the Lord for his shepherding care. His shepherding care reaches out to the lost ones, but even the ones who are with him, he shepherds. Dwell upon the hard and difficult things that the Lord Jesus has passed through for your temporal, spiritual, and eternal good. Ah, what a sea of blood, a sea of wrath, of sin, of sorrow, and misery did the Lord Jesus wade through for your internal and eternal good. Christ did not plead, this cross is too heavy for me to bear, this wrath is too great for me to lie under, this cup which has in it all the ingredients of divine displeasure is too bitter for me to sup off. How much more to drink the very dregs of it? No, Christ stands not upon this. He pleads not the difficulty of the service, but resolutely and bravely wades through it all. As the prophet Isaiah shows, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away my back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Christ makes nothing of the Father's wrath, the burden of your sins, the malice of Satan, and the rage of the world, but sweetly and triumphantly passes through all. And then he says, ah, souls, if this consideration will not raise up your spirits above all the discouragements that you meet with to own Christ in his service and to stick and cleave to Christ in his service, I'm afraid nothing will. Now those times where he uses some word or some person or something in his providence and he's pointing you back to him that is his shepherding and he loves and cares for his sheep he tends to them and he seeks them if they wander off he knows he's aware he knows all of his sheep remember what he said in john 10 truly i say to you Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door, 
into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way. He is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep, plural, hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out so they can go get some pasture. Do you know Christ knows your name? He knows your name. If you belong to him, he's completely aware of you. And he cares when you're wandering. Now, in the illustration, Jesus isn't getting that specific yet. He's giving an illustration, which again would have been common to them, but we naturally are tending to think about his shepherding. But I want you to notice the potential for harm for a stray. Notice Jesus' words in verse 13. If it turns out that he finds it. If it turns out that he finds it. If it happens. The possibility is the shepherd, not talking about Jesus, but the shepherd could go out and not find the sheep. Could have gotten into a cave, could have fallen off a cliff. Could have been eaten by wolves. Could have gotten stolen. I read a story this week about a woman who lives in rural Maine. She had a flock of sheep. She came home late in the day. She thought they had just gone into the barn. She didn't really check on them. She thought they'd be okay. She came out in the morning. They weren't in the barn. They weren't in the pasture. She looked around. They weren't in the woods. They weren't anywhere. Where do they go? 22 sheep. As she estimated the value, she used their wool for her crafts, and she estimated the value of just one fleece. If they just fleeced one sheep and used that for her crafts, it was going to bring profit of hundreds of dollars, just one. If she used the whole flock for even meat, it'd be in the thousands of dollars, over 10000 Then after... She realized something happened. Maybe somebody stole them. As they posted information on social media, a neighbor learned and said, oh, I did see a trailer pulling up there. And what they learned later was that it appears someone pulled a trailer up to her barn, loaded the sheep on, took it somewhere else in rural Maine, posted an ad on Craigslist for 22 sheep. And the next thing she knew is when she came home from another craft fair, there are 22 sheep running around her driveway, not in their pen. So how'd they get back? She said they were thinner, but they didn't have evidence that they'd been in the woods. Somebody had stolen them. Those came back, but some sheep never do. Some of those lost sheep of the house of Israel, they never came to Christ. Some lost souls who hear the gospel never believe. That's a sad reality because there is 
an enemy. There is a thief, Jesus said, who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But he came. John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's the potential that someone never would be found. But what if someone does go astray? What does the good shepherd do? Notice verse 13 again, if it turns out that he finds it, he's on a search and rescue mission. And if he finds it, what happens? He rejoices. He takes joy in that one sheep being found more than all of the sheep he already has in his care and protection, probably with other shepherds. And again, just using a natural illustration here, you can imagine seeing the shepherd, if you're one of the under shepherds taking care of the 99, and here he comes up from the valley, and he's got a sheep on, its sh on his shoulders. Maybe it's bruised and cut. Maybe it's been torn by wolves, but he's got it. And here he comes back to the fold. And the others are rejoicing, but he's rejoicing. I got it. I brought it back. I've never seen that. I can imagine it with my mind's eye. I do remember when I was in fifth grade and my dog got hit by a car. And the person who hit the dog came to our house and said, do you have a black dog? And so I hit this dog, but it ran off. So I think it's still alive, but I don't know where it is. Couldn't follow it. And our dog had gone into the woods, I learned later. But we really, after several days, were wondering if we'd ever see the dog again. I still remember I was at school, and I got a call to the office, and I get a little green piece of paper. And my mom had called school and said, your dog came home. I was overjoyed. I can re I can remember the spot as a fifth grader. The joy that was in my heart. We had other animals at the time, but and not that I devalued the other ones. But my dog came home, broken hip, had to take him to the vet, had issues with that for the rest of his life. But my dog was back. Now. Can you see the implication here? Verse 13, if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. The implication is that Jesus is talking about sinners, and he is talking about himself as the good shepherd. This may be a common day illustration, but really Jesus is trying to show his own heart about when a sinner is rescued, when a sinner turns from his or her sins and comes to him. The joy that fills his heart. He says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. That story of the lost sheep is parallel with, in Luke's gospel, the woman who lost her coins and found them and called everybody to rejoice. And then the prodigal son where the 
father, remember where the father is? He's out, he's looking, he's waiting, and he sees his son coming from far away, and he runs to meet him, right? The father runs to meet him, and the son is trying to ask for forgiveness and apology, and rightly so, because he'd sinned against his father, but his father just embraces him and says, get the best robe and let's kill the fatted calf, puts a ring on his finger. The, the, the father is filled with joy. He wants everybody else to rejoice. This is the joy of the shepherd when he saves and rescues and the lost is found. Praise the Lord for such a gracious and good shepherd who cares for us individually. In other words, you can think of salvation and the host of millions upon millions that one day will stand before the throne. But Jesus, the good shepherd, and the king upon that throne knows every single one of his subjects. He knows all of his sheep. He cares about all of his sheep. He knows their name. He knows how he saved them. The songwriter said, late, late at night, I saw the shepherd toiling slow along the hill, though the flock below were gathered in the fold so warm and still. On his face, I saw the anguish in his locks, the drops of night. He searched the misty valleys. He climbed the frosty heights. Just one tender lamb was missing when he called them all by name. While the others heard and followed, this one only never came. Oft his voice rang through the darkness, oft that long, light, long night of pain, oft he vainly paused to listen for an answering tone again. Far away the truant sleeping by the chasm of despair lay unconscious of its danger shivering in the mountain air. But at last the shepherd found it, found it ere the sleep in sleep it died, took it in his loving bosom and his soul was satisfied. Jesus takes joy in rescuing sinners like you and me. He loves his sheep. He loves them. Every one of them. Basil of Caesarea must have loved this young woman who had fallen into sin. If you read his letters, you see some of the letters that he wrote. He lived in the fourth century. Some of the letters he's writing to fellow pastors, others, friends. This one was to a woman, young woman in his congregation who had fallen into immorality. And in that letter, he calls her to repent to turn from her sin. He, he tells her to look down the corridor of time to see herself at the judgment seat when God, the judge of all, is going to make known everything that a person has ever done. Basically warns her, calls her to do what we sang about this morning, hide yourself in the blood. You want to avoid that judgment day when all of your sins are declared before God? Find refuge in the blood of Christ, which covers it all. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's what the blood of Christ does. It covers our sins. We are forgiven completely, totally. 
And he appealed through many appeals, just scriptural appeals, from the Gospels, from the mouth of Christ himself, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. And then he says, what excuse do you have? What excuse has anyone, he says, when he, Christ, speaks thus? The Lord wishes to cleanse you from the trouble of your sickness and to show you light after darkness. The good shepherd who left them that had not wandered away is seeking after you. If you give yourself to him, he will not hold back. He and his love will not disdain even to carry you on his shoulders, rejoicing that he's found his sheep which was lost. For verily I say to you, says he, there is joy in heaven before God over one sinner that repents. If any of those who think they stand find fault because of your quick reception, the good father will make answer for you in the words, it was fitting that we should make merry and be glad for this. My daughter was dead and is alive again, was lost and is now found. I don't know what happened to that young lady. But that care in that pastor's heart is a good but imperfect reflection of one who cares and loves perfectly. And who would rejoice if a sinner came home today? Today. There could be somebody in this room, and you're a lost sheep. You've never known the Lord. You're wandering and he's calling. He's calling through the word of God and he's calling through the gospel. And he's calling you to life and he's calling you to life abundant, eternal life. Why would you not, why would you not answer to such a call? He's such a good shepherd. He promises Forgiveness. He promises a hope in heaven forever. He promises to wash you, cleanse you, and keep you in life. Come into the fold. And he always speaks the truth. There is no contradiction to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by, by, except by me. You can try to contradict him, but you're trying to contradict him who is the truth himself, who came to this world to declare that so people would see and know the way to God. I'm the way, Jesus said. You just need to trust that he's the way. Put your faith and trust in him and find forgiveness of sins. Call out upon his name and he will save you and rescue you. Now, I just want to draw attention to one more thing, and that is it's not just Jesus. Jesus, a reflection of Jesus here is, is shown, I believe, in this parable that he has given, verses 12 and 13. I say a reflection because a human shepherd, if he's good at what he does, is going to be a reflection of the good shepherd, Jesus. But Jesus is not only talking about himself here. He's already referenced in verse 10, the father, and it's verse 14 where he references the father again. He says, so 
It is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Again, who are the little ones? The little ones who come to Christ in humble trustfulness. They're the tax collectors who repented, the sinners, the ones who were openly disobedient to law, who repented and turned. Christ befriended them. He saved them. And it's not the will of your father. It's not the disposition of your father that any one of them should perish. I don't believe Jesus is talking about the absolute decree. Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things after the counsel of his own will. We believe in the doctrine of election. We believe that God chooses some to salvation, passes over others. But what is God's disposition towards any sinner? He desires their salvation. This is a statement that I think could be reflected elsewhere in the word of God. Listen, Psalm 81. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Ezekiel 18, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Say to them, Ezekiel 33, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? The Lord is not slow, slow, Peter said about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is his disposition, his desire. And you might say, well, why then isn't, aren't everybody, you know, why doesn't every person get saved? And that's, Paul raises that in Romans chapter 9. And he basically says, who are we to even ask the question? God is sovereign in who he shows mercy to. He's sovereign in that. And he also hardens whom he will. Difficult for us to understand, but it's not difficult to understand the posture of God towards sinners. He sent his son into the world to rescue sinners. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He who did not his spare his own son, Romans 8 says, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? So the love of a good shepherd is a reflection of the true great and good shepherd, Jesus Christ. But the great and good shepherd, Jesus Christ, is one with the Father the father whose love sent Jesus to rescue sinners in the first place. And it's not his desire that any one of these little ones should perish. And of course, he rejoices when they come home too. And we should not despise them. If Jesus doesn't despise them, if the father doesn't despise them, we should not despise them. And where Jesus is going, if you look at verse 15 and following, is that not only should we not despise them, but if they fall into sin, they fall into a path of sin, 
then love for that brother or sister is to go to that person and talk with them. You become, by God's grace and with his help, a part of what God is doing to rescue that sheep. Now, if it's someone who hasn't come to Christ yet, we we certainly call sinners to repentance through the gospel. But if it is someone who is truly a brother or a sister, then we have the privilege of calling those brothers and sisters, those little ones, those sheep to come back. And that needs to be done carefully, according to Christ's instruction. He gives this instruction because he cares for and he loves his people. And you and I should too. In other words, to fail to do what Matthew 18, 15 through 18 says is to fail really to love. It's a failure to give proper esteem to a brother or sister in Christ. To just let them go on in their sin and to let them pursue the course of their life without calling them back to the Lord is really not loving. Right? You, You hear about a sheep that's gone astray and you don't go looking? It doesn't matter to me anyway. That's not the heart of God. And that's not the heart of his true people filled by his spirit. So God's given us such a privilege when we come to this chapter to see our Lord's posture and his love for his little ones and to see how we can, by his grace, participate in what he's doing to rescue sinners, whether lost, unsaved, or whether a brother or sister who's gone astray. I trust as we continue through this chapter, the Lord will teach us, give us more insight as to how we can be a part of what he's doing. Let's pray. Lord, if there is any lost sheep here today, someone who's never called upon your name, Lord, I pray that you would work by your spirit in their heart to bring them to a place. Conviction, recognition of the truth about Christ, recognition of their need for his salvation. Have mercy. Rescue them, Lord. And if there is someone today who is walking after their own desires, astray, far from you. Help them to heed the voice of the shepherd. Don't let them continue on in their sin. We know you love them, Lord. If you've already saved them, Bring them back, we pray. Work in their heart in such a way that you make them willing, Lord, to turn from their sin and find refuge again 
as we always do in Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.